Welcome to another episode of Fringe with me, your host, Joe Collins, joined today by writer, filmmaker and TikTok star, David John Bukali. Today, we're going to be exploring the captivating world of Somali pirates and their connection to continued resource extraction in Africa. In this case, the significant impact of illegal fishing. Located in the Horn of Africa, Somalia is a country with a rich history and diverse cultural heritage. However, it has faced numerous challenges, including political instability, climate change and economic hardships. Over the years, the nation has garnered attention for being a hotbed of piracy in the maritime domain, making it a focal point in discussions about security and resource exploitation. Join us as we delve into the intriguing tales of high seas piracy and the complex interplay between economic exploitation and maritime security in the region. So, welcome, David. How are you today? I'm good, I'm good. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here with you this evening. It's an honour to have you on. So we'll kick it off today. How did you become a content creator? How did how did kind of that happen? Well, um, I've always been a storyteller because I'm a writer. Uh, I, I believe that it's very important for us to tell our stories. So apart from my passion for writing, I also feel like I have a moral responsibility to tell the story of Africa and a lot of times when you do that uh, through the written word, it outlives you. Uh, so that is the main reason why, you know, I thought that uh, storytelling is something that is not restricted to any one medium. So I decided that uh, uh, because platforms like TikTok and also Instagram uh, are also platforms where I can tell my stories. So I decided to also do do that. And uh, I'm happy that that seems to have resonated well because we have to tell the African story. We have to tell the African narrative. Failure to do so, we leave a vacuum that has sadly been filled historically in ways that were not uh, either accurate to the African story or uh, downright misleading. Hmm. And. I recommend anyone listening to follow you on Instagram and TikTok because it's incredibly knowledgeable listening to you. Thank you. So let's talk about Somalia itself first, because I know a lot of people, especially in the West, when they hear Somalia, they just think of instability. Why is that? Well, uh, first of all, let me say that uh, uh, the Somali community is also in Kenya. We have uh, more than, way more than 2 million Somalis in Kenya. My, so they are my fellow Kenyans. And Kenya has uh, almost 45 different communities. And the Somali uh, community is one of them. So for me, it is very personal because Somalis are my fellow Kenyans. They are my fellow Africans. Uh, and, and the country of Somalia happens to be next to Kenya. So we are neighbors. And uh, one thing that is very clear is that uh, Somali is richly endowed, Joe. It is richly endowed with natural resources. In fact, uh, people don't know that Somalia has Africa's longest coastline. And because it has Africa's longest coastline, it means that Somalia's territorial waters are humongous, are completely humongous. Uh, they, they are so big. Uh, which then means that Somalia's marine ecosystem 
is mammoth and Somalia's marine resources are equally mammoth. So it is a, an extremely blessed country in that sense. And the people of Somalia, uh, the Somali people are hands down some of the most enterprising humans on planet Earth. They are so, so enterprising. Uh, here in Kenya, we have uh, in Nairobi, where I am, uh, we have a place, no, a neighborhood known as Isli, Isli neighborhood that is uh, predominated by uh, the Somali community. And it is one of Nairobi's most vibrant commercial hubs, which is just testament to the entrepreneurial spirit of the people of Somalia. Uh, and Somalis as a whole, whether they happen to be in Kenya or whether they happen to be in Somalia. Uh, and it's important for the world to appreciate that because when you look at this uh, country of Somalia, a lot of people tend to see Al-Shabaab or just to see the conflict that has tragically been there for so long. I'm not going to downplay that. Somalia has had issues as a state, but that is just one side of the story. And that's what I mean by multiple African narratives that have to be told. Uh, the three-dimensional story of Somalia has to be told. And it starts with acknowledging and celebrating the amazing entrepreneurial people of Somalia. Uh, the second thing is to also acknowledge and celebrate Somalia's immense natural resources. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. Like the, the history that comes out of Somalia going back thousands of years and the culture that goes along with that can't be, can't be denied. Um, yes. So how has Somalia with its incredible history and rich resources been afflicted by piracy? Well, uh, that's a great question because uh, it's an example of what I meant earlier on when I said that a lot of times when you leave a vacuum, it is then filled by extremely misleading stories that are absolutely not accurate. Uh, so this whole issue of piracy uh, started when mainstream media began covering uh, the fact that uh, Somali pirates were hijacking ships. And then that became the only storyline that went across the world because people were seeing it every other day on mainstream media, whether it's CNN, BBC, or uh, all these outlets that are consumed by people globally. It mainly focused on the fact that Somali pirates were hijacking ships and demanding ransom. Now, the reason that is just partly accurate is it ignored the genesis of that. It ignored the genesis of that and uh, painted this, not just the Somali pirates, but to an extent, the people of Somalia as uh, very unfair to the world of as, as hijacking innocent, innocent ship. Now, this is what we have to really understand. I've already told you how Somalia has immense marine resources. And because Somalia has Africa's longest coastline, it means that being able to police that entire area would take a lot of resources, even for a completely peaceful country. Now, when you're talking about a country that was, uh, that was and still is in the process of rebuilding itself as a nation state, then that is even a double challenge to be able to police 
these entire waters. But Joe, instead of the global community, most of the West, most of the North, most of a rich economy like China, instead of them holding the hand of Somalia's government so that they can help them to police these waters, what happened is that vessels began uh, infiltrating these waters. They began stealing, to put it bluntly, they began stealing Somalia's uh, resources. And that became something that was happening uh, on a fairly regular basis. Now, the people of Somalia cannot just watch their resources being plundered. So they teamed up and they began to protect their resources. And in so doing, they, uh, this then appeared to metamorphose into what the world came to know as piracy. But it was simply a question of the people of Somalia saying that if you're going to take our resources without our permission, then you're giving us the leeway or the permission, if you will, to take your resources, in this case, the ship, without your permission. Now, you have to remember that if the world had not been stealing Somalia's resources, there would have been no need for Somalia to either re retaliate or defend themselves. There would have been no need at all to do that. So people ask, do two wrongs make a right? It's easy to make a moral argument that they do not. But that also misses the point that uh, is it moral to take what belongs to another country with impunity? No, it is not. And if this country is then defending itself, the issue of whether this is a right or wrong is up in the air for argument. What is clear is that they were simply defending themselves and they were simply retaliating a wrong that had been done to them. Now, are there criminal elements that maybe infiltrated that? Again, that is up for discussion. Even if they were, even if they were criminal elements, they were only able to do that because the world itself created that kind of environment by committing the initial crime. Then there's another point to this. There's another factor to this that is also very, very important to highlight, Joe. And it's this. Uh, from the late 80s, from the late 80s, the world was also dumping toxic waste into Somalia. They were dumping toxic waste into not just uh, the, the coastal part of Somalia, but even inland Somalia. Now, who does that, man? Imagine a situation where in your house, Joe, if somebody from tomorrow starts coming at your doorstep, knocking, ringing the bell, and when you open the door, they dump waste, not even toxic waste, but they just dump waste into your house. You cannot take that. You cannot take that. It does not matter if a household member in your house is the one opening the door for them. They have no business even negotiating with that household member to dump waste into your house. And the reason I say that is because while it is accurate that there were some uh, leaders in Somalia itself, Somali leaders, who aided and abetted the dumping of this toxic waste, again, 
they were only able to do so because the world was knocking on that door, demanding to dump toxic waste into Somalia. Now, please circle the word toxic. This was not just waste, but it was toxic. And this happened, Joe, year after year after year after year. This was not a one-off thing. And research was done that clearly showed that there was an impact on the health of people, on the health of animals, on the health of Somalia's environment. Because this was toxic waste. If you dump toxic waste anywhere, you're inviting ill health on the people who live there and on the environment of that place. So this was a situation where Somalia was, so to speak, under the twin assault of toxic waste being dumped into its territorial waters, into its inland, into, uh, into its terrestrial territory. On the one hand, that was happening, and on the other hand, uh, its marine resources were being stolen. To date, there has been no concerted effort from the global community to bring justice to the people of Somalia for these things happening. Instead, there was a lot of effort to, to malign them because of the piracy and to completely ignore the extreme injustices that were being meted out as this waste was being dumped there and as their resources were being stolen. I did, while I was doing the research for this episode, I was looking into like, I was trying to work out where some of the companies and ships that were extracting resources were actually from. And it's almost impossible to come up with a list because it's everywhere. Like there was yeah. places from Europe, Asia, the America, an endless list of countries and companies pillaging resources and then dumping waste or whether it's electronics, which is another continued issue on the uh, Horn of Africa. It's disgusting how people just seem to treat the African continent as a different planet. And that's never really changed. So Exactly. A... Now, yeah. Uh, let me just give you another example here to reiterate how and why the world turned Somalia into a dumping site, toxic waste, into a free-for-all where anybody could, could go and take whatever uh, they wanted. Uh, back in 1951, back in 1951, Firestone Company, the revenue of Firestone Company in Liberia was three times as much as the Liberian government's revenue uh, uh, that particular year. It was three times as much as what the Liberian government collected in tax revenue that year. And you know how they were making that money first on? They were doing it because they had uh, gotten a 99-year lease back in the late 20s. They got a 99-year lease on almost a tenth, on almost one-tenth of, uh, of Liberia's arable land. Now, they began to harvest the rubber, the latex. They began to harvest rubber from huge sweats of land in Liberia. They were making crazy money and making crazy money. But meanwhile, the people of Liberia, uh, apart from the jobs that they were getting, 
they had gotten a short end of the bargain in that whole arrangement. Uh, to date, Firestone is still in Liberia. The arrangement is a little bit uh, uh, different, but the point is they have been there for almost one century. And during this period, they have made crazy, 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 almost immoral sums of money. Now, granted, a lot of it was in cahoots with a, a corrupt leadership in Liberia at the time, the same way that uh, corrupt leaders in Somalia enabled the dumping of the West. But the reason I draw your attention to that Liberia situation, which is a conversation for another day, because it also really epitomizes the kind of injustice that is meted out on this continent when it comes to stealing our natural resources and our mineral resources, uh, especially when it is clocked as a, an above the table business arrangement, investment opportunity, that is if anything good for the people of that country, then it looks like something good. At least the Somalia situation is, is, is so clear that this was just downright thuggery. But now there's hidden thuggery that we have to address at another point. Now, I want you to juxtapose that, the Liberia situation and the Somalia situation. What's happening is that in both cases, natural resources belonging to two African countries are being taken away without the permission of the people themselves. One may make the argument that the government has agreed and it's a representative of the people, but that would only be vindicated if there are clear, crystal clear benefits for the people. So when you look at the Somali situation, it simply was turned into a dumping site. So I want you to picture in your mind, wherever West uh, in the UK is dumped, you know, in the mid, uh, uh, where you are currently, wherever it is that they dump West, picture that, picture that. Now replace that with the amazing country of Somalia, both the territorial waters and inland Somalia, because it became a dumping ground for these toxic wastes. Now, the broader conversation that can be made is, uh, where are the global bodies? Where were the global bodies? Because you rightfully say that a lot of countries were involved in this. Some of the more, uh, some of those that were really publicized would be countries like Italy, yeah? Uh, but it was not just Italy alone. So the point is that where were the global bodies? You know, uh, this gives me a chance to mention something that we find really troubling. Uh, NATO usually says that an attack on one of us is an attack on all of us, which is why NATO is on the forefront of, uh, or, you know, of supporting any country within the NATO fraternity that is then under attack or perceived to be under attack. Now, that kind of solidarity does not apply when it comes to many African countries. Now, I get it. We're not in NATO, neither do we want to be in NATO. But it seems to me like it is double standards, moral double standards, that when injustice is being meted out, 
on a country that is in the north, that is in the west, then there's very quick action to seek to correct that injustice. But when this was happening to Somalia over decades, whether it is the European Union, whether it is NATO, and sadly, even the United Nations, there was very, very little concerted effort to tackle that matter. Instead, a lot of focus, uh, the narrative now turned on the, the so-called Somali warlords and how they were hampering peace. And when there was that uh, scenario where American soldiers tragically died in Somalia, and that became a stain on President Bush, uh, a lot was said about that. Meanwhile, dozens, hundreds, thousands of Somalis were losing their lives, whether directly or indirectly, because of toxic waste that was being dumped in their country, because of uh, how Somalia then started becoming a pariah nation because of uh, uh, that so-called piracy. People were being affected. People were really being affected. And very little was done. Very, very little was done to actually bring them justice. So we cannot turn a blind eye on the global bodies, the EUs of this world and the UNs of this world, that didn't do much. Now, somebody may then ask the question, what about the African Union? Because now that is an African body, that's an African entity. Uh, I have been very consistent, as I've been uh, a lot of fellow African leaders, uh, in saying that we need a much, much, much stronger African Union that is going to have a lot more uh, financial muscle, military muscle, so that we can be able to solve some of these problems on our own, in our own African way. The problem is that African Union itself uh, remains pretty much handicapped by lack of finances, pretty much handicapped by uh, sometimes even lack of clarity in the vision. But that is true even of the European Union. That's why you've had the likes of uh, your country, Joe, uh, leaving the Brexit. So uh, all these bodies are always work in progress because sometimes people point at the African Union from outside Africa to say that, oh, but why don't you solve your own problems in the way that you need and want to solve them? Because just like the European experiment, we're also working progress. The difference, Joe, is that uh, we do not interfere with the European experiment. We do not go to the European Union telling them, do things this way, do things that way. But they keep interfering. With, the, with our own realities at the national level and the continental level. I'll give you another example. And the reason I'm saying all these things is because people have to understand the context that what was happening in Somalia is not happening in isolation. There's a reason that that, is happens, that happens and global interference, more so from the West, but also lately China and Russia, I might add, but again, conversation for another day, all that interference keeps hampering our progress. Let me give you a quick example of the Sahel region. The Sahel region is currently embroiled in a, a, a very bitter conflict that has left so many people dead. 
barely a week goes by that people in Burkina Faso, Mali, are not dying in that entire Sahel region. Mm. But here's the thing, Joe. The current conflict in the Sahel region only started when Libya collapsed. Because when Libya collapsed after Muammar Gaddafi uh, was eliminated, it opened the door for insurgents uh, to then infiltrate the Sahel region. And when African presidents, five African presidents to be uh, particular, tried to mediate before Libya fell, before Muammar Gaddafi was killed, when they tried to mediate, NATO stopped that. NATO did not facilitate that. Instead, they declared the no-fly zone and you know, made it practically impossible for anybody to fly into Libya to mediate anything. Now, remember, uh, when that was happening and African leaders had been aged to the sites, it simply meant, Joe, that they presumed to know best what was best, not just for Libya, but then the, the, the neighborhood area, the Sahel region. They didn't pause to ask themselves the question, wait a minute, what kind of impact are we then going to have on the Sahel region? Instead, there was a very paternalistic, insensitive focus on a Western solution and completely ignoring the African reality of that so-called Western solution. And so to date, we are paying the price. We are still paying the price in the Sahel region. About 40% of Burkina Faso is no longer even under the control of the government itself. And the world is now slowly forgetting about the conflict in the Sahel region, the same way we have forgotten about the conflict in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Again, story for another day, because DRC would not be in the situation that it is in if Patrice Lumumba had not been uh, overthrown with the help of uh, uh, USA, Belgium, and uh, other elements in the West. Uh, Congo, DRC would have been able to build spontaneously and gradually as an amazing country. Africa would have benefited in the process and the world would have benefited. But because of that interference in the early 60s, DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, is yet to find peace. And now the blame is being cast on uh, other African leaders. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. The point I'm making is that the West has this habit of perpetrating conflict in Africa, facilitating conflict, even nurturing that conflict, or meeting out injustices and then walking away, just walking away and leaving us to clean the mess that they themselves have started. Now, you see, when you look at DRC, Joe, when you look at the Sahel region, you begin seeing a pattern that then plays out in Somalia. Because in, in all those cases, it is an issue of foreigners. It is an issue of non-African entities uh, from China, from even Iran. You know, it, 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 that's one area where there's the foreigners seemed to unite. They put aside their usual geopolitical differences and just dove right in so that they can 
gobble as much as possible. You see, and these things are unacceptable. It is a pattern of uh, these fellows treating Africa like they can, they can just come and take whatever they want. And that also happened during colonialism. You know, yeah. this happened during colonialism. Uh, again, it's going to be important for the world to really, really unpack that vis-a-vis -vis what is happening today. Then finally on that point, let me just say that sometimes people like saying, oh, why are you playing victim mentality? You know, why can't you stand up and defend yourself or do what you need to do? Uh, and my answer to that is that uh, we cannot run away from the past. The past impacts, yesterday impacts what is happening today. So if you want to correct today and correct tomorrow, you have to start by correcting yesterday and learning from the history of yesterday. Because if we don't do that, that is why we keep getting into scenarios where that unfortunate history of making Somalia a dumping site, of making Africa a play field where anybody can just come in and play as they will and take min our mineral resources, we have to talk about those uh, historical injustices because that then helps in correcting today and it then helps us to chat out how our tomorrow should look like. That's an absolutely fantastic answer. Like, I, and what I want to hone on there is like, we, we really could have this conversation about an endless amount of topics in Africa based about resource extraction. We mentioned Mali there. We could talk about the French gold reserves that come from Mali. We talked about the DRC. We could talk about an endless amount of mining in the east and south of the country, even yeah. Nigeria and the issues it faces with piracy in the Niger Delta. Like yeah. there are so many topics that we can, and hopefully we can explore together in the future on here. Um, how yeah. does climate change and say the awful droughts and famines that the east kind of the horn of Africa have experienced, how's that, affected piracy and say insurgency as well yeah another great question um and to really break it down and then briefly build on it uh we have our way of life that has been going on for millennia we interact very symbiotically and productive with our natural resources. For instance, land use is in, in most of Africa had to do with the tilling land, uh, farming it organically, farming it organically, extracting from that land uh, crop harvests, whether it is beans, maize, or African leafy vegetables. And that served us for millennia very well. Disease the kind of diseases, for example, cancer and numerous other diseases that we experience today. I myself, Joe, growing up, I myself growing up, I did not know a single person who had cancer until I was well into my late teens. Hmm. But as a child, I didn't know anybody who either had cancer. I only knew one person who was obese. And because this was the only person obese, you know, you know, we all knew him and we all talked about him. Uh, 
but everybody else was not. You know, I'm just trying to show you how our symbiotic interaction with our natural resources, in that case, land, was so healthy, just for not just for us, but the land itself, because we, we were not dumping chemical fertilizers in, into that land every other day. Now, imagine a situation where all that has been happening, and one of the reasons is because rain was so reliable. Rain was so reliable. We knew that the long rains are from March to about May. We knew that the short rains are in November, December there. So uh, as sure as the sun sets in the west, we could plant stuff and we could have it have stuff. We had enough to eat. Uh, uh, much as these were food crops and not cash crops, there was no need. Nobody was starving, you know. Yeah. The concept of humanitarian aid was unknown to someone like me for, for so long, you know, for so long because growing up, we had enough and most of Africa had enough. Now, why am I telling you all that? Because when climate change began to, to result in erratic rainfall and that age-old pattern that I've just described was then interfered with, it now led to matters like food insecurity. It led to matters of uh, increased rural urban migration. And in those urban areas, the food coming from the rural areas was now less or more expensive and all that. So we are right now in the middle of that upheaval. As I talked to you, we are, we are right in the middle of that upheaval. And erratic rainfall is a major part of that. And that is all part of climate change. Now, when you're talking about a country like Somalia, back to that and the link to piracy, when these people have been depending, because even Somalia, you know, they are farmers, people imagine that Somalia is just for pastoralists. It's not, there are farmers there. Uh, and even the dependence on the marine resources, the fish, uh, climate change resulting in coral bleaching. And these corals, Joe, are the breeding ground for the fish. So when coral bleaching uh, started becoming extreme, when that started affecting the, 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 the breeding of the fish, and when the fish is dwindling, then in the coast of Somalia, if the, when the fish is also being stolen, now you have like a, a double assault from climate change on the one hand, through the coral bleaching, and from the uh, thuggery of this fish and other marine resources on the other hand. So this left the Somali people really pressed. Imagine a situation where you're pressed and buffeted from all sides. Mm. And as you struggle to survive, the one instinct that all of us human beings share is the need to survive. So when the survival instincts of these people kicked in, and then they, against all odds, because they are very resilient, so against all odds, when despite all this, the people are surviving, but then the challenges were mounting and mounting, I have to say that uh, the stealing of these resources couldn't have come at a worse time. The modern insurgent is completely independent. If you want to support our work and help boost independent journalism, 
please consider supporting us via Patreon at patreon.com slash moderninsurgent. Thank you very much. What are some of the challenges and opportunities for regional cooperation in addressing some of the issues we've talked about today? Um, great question. Um, and I would say that um, the primary challenge boils down to what I refer to as a, a state survival, state survival. Uh, and that is directly linked to the issue of debt because we have situations, for example, Kenya, we are now using more than 60%, I believe it's 67% of our GDP to service debt. And, and that is just completely crazy because uh, every penny that goes towards uh, servicing debt, paying our debt, is a penny that is not going to build a national infrastructure uh, reliable food systems, reliable healthcare systems. So when Kenya then becomes preoccupied with uh, uh, being able to pay this debt, uh, granted some of this debt was irresponsibly borrowed. Uh, we have to take responsibility for that. But the foundation of that, the foundation of that, uh, of, of a lot of debt in Africa, the foundation of that was not about irresponsible borrowing, but rather it had to do with the uh, predatory lending on the part of the West, again. Uh, and now on the part of China, you know, it, it's, it's not just the West that is guilty, now even China is. Because here's the thing, Joe, um, if I tell you that I'm going to lend you a hundred thousand pounds and I make it extremely easy to lend you that a hundred thousand pounds, but in the fine print, it becomes very clear that yes, I'm going to lend you that money, but you will be beholden to me for the next couple of decades. Then the fact that I availed that loan is the reason you ended up borrowing it. So the world must understand that if there had been no predatory lending on the part of the West and now on the part of China, African governments would not have had to, to then go for this uh, quick fix it, seemingly fix it solutions that are ending, uh, that, that are actually enslaving us. So this debt issue is really hamstringing uh, a lot of African governments from being able to do what they're supposed to do, which then leads to the, those survival instincts and survival mentality that makes it very difficult to have a very fruitful and symbiotic collaboration. Because if Kenya is preoccupied with its own problems, uh, it, it may not focus as it could and as it should on matters of the Horn of Africa as Somalia, Ethiopia, Kenya, and uh, the, you know, the countries in this region as known as. So that is the first big challenge. We have to be able to, 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 to revise, rewire, and revamp the, the global financial system, whether it is the Bretton Woods, IMF and World Bank, or whether it is on a bilateral level, we can't have a situation where Kenya owes 
the United Kingdom. Kenya owes Canada. Kenya owes USA. Kenya owes China. You know, we, we can't keep having all these things and we owe the World Bank and we owe... Uh, so our position is a bit radical, but our position is simply that all this debt must just be wiped away because uh, you are the people, you know, the, the, the China and the West are the people who came up with the predatory lending in the first place. So because they did so, they, they just have to, you know, to man up and, and, and accept that this is not working so that we start on a clean slate, on a completely clean slate. I know that is a long shot, but it's a conversation that must be had because as long as African countries like Kenya, Zambia, you know, Angola, we, we keep just forever paying, spending more than 50% of our GDP on paying loans, we will continue having these survival instincts at the state level that then really blind us from doing what we're supposed to do. So that's challenge number one that needs to be addressed. Challenge number two uh, now has to do with uh, uh, this geopolitical interference that is as old as, that predates the independent African nations that not only goes back to 1883, 15th November during the Berlin conference when uh, Africa was partitioned and shared like a piece of meat, uh, we're still facing the consequences of that, but it even predates that. You have to go back to the 1700s when uh, America and Portugal and, uh, you know, to an extent the Arabic uh, countries, they made it very lucrative for African countries to fight so that the prisoners can be sold as slaves. Again, uh, that's another conversation, but people like saying that, you know, uh, you wouldn't have buyers of slaves if you didn't have sellers of these slaves locally, but then they missed the point completely because they made it very lucrative. You know, the Africans were just busy living their lives and minding their business, and then voila, uh, it, it, it came to be that, by the way, you can actually sell your fellow Africans and make some money. So there was a lot of interference from that stage because we then ended up losing our prime people, uh, you know, able-bodied men and women and all that. So the point I'm making is that that interference that is centuries old is still at play, and that is a major, major hindrance. For example, when you look at Sudan, and Kenya is on the forefront of trying to mediate there, but when you look at Sudan, uh, one of the contents that I prepared that I think really, really resonated globally had to do with the Sudan war. When I was making the argument that I'll reiterate now that there's a huge aspect of that being a proxy war. Some of it is underhanded, uh, but some of it is it, it, it's out there in the glaring light. You know, there are countries that are for General Al-Burhan, the chief of the Sudanese army. There are countries that are for uh, Mohamed Dagalo, the head of the Rapid Support Forces, who incidentally controls most of the gold that is in Sudan. So the countries that are benefiting from that gold that is smuggled out of Sudan, uh, they have a vested interest to support him. So because of this wider 
geopolitical uh, issues, uh, you find that sometimes as African countries, we end up, you know, in the spirit of needing to survive, you find the likes of Central Africa Republic uh, getting into bed with the WANA group so that they can have uh, protection, essentially outsourcing protection of the country. And they make the argument that if now there's a bit more security because of that, then so be it. Uh, but that is a very contentious issue, yet it's a very uh, glaring example of what I mean by state survival. If Central Africa feels it has to do what it has to do to survive, they are going to do it. So if in this case, Russia through the WANA group wasn't an option, then Central Africa Republic wouldn't take that option because it's not on the table. They're only taking that option because it's on the table. And they're also only taking that option because they are really fed up with France. So we have this aspect of uh, some African nations essentially moving from one toxic relationship with a foreign country into yet another toxic relationship. But just as happens at our own level, you know, if people are in a very toxic relationships, the bar of a healthy relationship is so damn low that when they move on to the next toxic person, it appears like this is way better, yet it's still the same toxicity. So that's a major, major challenge. The fact that we have so many vested interests globally, we have all these nations that want something. In Sudan, they want Sudan's gold. They want Sudan's port. Russia wants to set up an even base uh, in Sudan. America doesn't want that to happen. So, you know, it, it's such a mess that uh, it really complicates matters when it comes to attaining of peace. But if the if it was not an issue of Russia wants this, America wants this, so there's a replay of uh, the Cold War, but it is much more... Uh, uh, secretive, so it is harder to stop it, you know. That is a challenge and that is why conversations like the ones we are having become even more critical because in our own small way we begin to, at the very least, provoke people to have more critical thinking on these matters because the more that happens, the more you can pressurize your government uh, and say, Mr. Rishi Sunak, hands off Kenya, hands off Somalia. See, because uh, we're in this together. We only have one planet Earth. So if you're pressurizing your governments out there in the West or in China, and then over here, we're also pressurizing our governments that we are not going to be pro-West, we're not going to be pro-East, we're not going to be pro-China, we're not going to be pro-Russia, we are going to be pro-Africa. We're just going to be pro-Africa. And uh, if you want Sudan's gold, get it in the right way. You know, if you want uh, Congo's cobalt, get it in the right way. If you want Cameroon's gold, because Cameroon also has a lot of gold, but it's it, it, it gets out of that country in the wrong way, get it in the right way. So uh, that is a big challenge, but we're going to rise to the occasion because at the end of the day, there are 1.4 billion people in Africa and they have the final say. When they decide that enough is enough, they are going to be able 
to ensure that in very peaceful ways, we actually achieve what we're supposed to as a continent. Absolutely perfect answer. It's nailed both of my final questions in one. Absolutely brilliant. So that's all we've got time for today. So thank you very much, David, for coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, Could you tell the listeners where they can find you on Instagram and TikTok? Yeah, uh, on TikTok, you can go to David John Wakali. That's David John Wakali. If you just go there and search that, you'll find me there. On Instagram, it is DJ Wakali. Again, they can find me there. And we'll keep having this conversation. 100%. This won't be the last uh, episode we have together, I'm sure. Thank Great. Thanks for what you do and have a great evening.